Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our scripture passage for today comes from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. Listen for what God is saying to you. Therefore, I have a request for the elders among you. I ask this as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, and as one who shares in the glory that is about to be revealed. I urge the elders, like shepherds, tend the flock of God among you. Watch over it. Don't shepherd because you must, but do it voluntarily for God. Don't shepherd greedily, but do it eagerly. Don't shepherd by ruling over those entrusted to your care, but become examples to the flock. And when the cheap shepherd, shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. In the same way, I urge you who are younger, accept the authority of the elders. And everyone, clothe, clothe yourselves with humility toward each other. God stands against the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's power, so that he may raise you up in the last day. Throw all your anxiety onto him, because he cares about you. Be clear-headed, keep alert. Your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Do so in the knowledge that your fellow believers are enduring the same suffering throughout the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, the one who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, empower, strengthen, and establish you. To him be power forever and always. Amen. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. Thank you, Felix. Thank you um, to Dayette for sharing your story with us and reminding us, calling us toward uh, deeper compassion to one another. Thank you to Darius for uh, bringing that organ and just uh, providing an ocean of sound for us to be carried along in our worship. And thank you to everyone gathered in this space, helping us to do what we do and can only do together when it happened, when it comes to worship. Please join me. Uh, you know, I should also introduce myself. Uh, my name is Emily McGinley. I am uh, the pastor here of Urban Village Church, Hyde Park Woodlawn, and just grateful to be able to worship with you this morning. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together to, um, to learn something new, to be challenged, to be affirmed, to be loved, to be called to greater heights than what we would like, and to be reminded that we are held in your hands. And so we ask and invite your spirit to do all of those things in this space and at this moment. Open us up to receive what your word has to say to each one of us and help us to wrestle with the things that we need to wrestle with and to be encouraged by the things that we need to be encouraged by and just overall be reminded that you walk with us through every step of our lives and every stage of our journey. We pray this with gratitude and hope in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again just in case. Um, a few weeks ago, I uh, attended a faith and leadership 
um, workshop at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And over four days, I took some great insight, took in some great insights around things like organizational culture, influence and persuasion, volunteer management, and more. And one of the sessions was focused on decision making. During the lecture, I learned about a thing called confirmation bias. Has anyone heard of confirmation bias? couple of folks, see a vigorous head nod over there uh, by Derek. Um, basically, confirmation bias is the tendency that we have to interpret new information and evidence um, in a way that confirms our existing beliefs um, or theories. And what I learned was that if you want to make the best decision that you can, it's important to be aware of your confirmation biases and, in fact, root those out because they create blind spots in our judgment. It's tempting to want to be surrounded by people and information and opinions uh, that make us feel right. Daya kind of shared a little bit about that actually in her, her testimony, right? But of course, that kind of thinking can get us into some real trouble. There were the countless doctors in the 1800s who refused to listen to a colleague who had a theory about germs. And they would go from performing autopsies to delivering babies down the hall and refused to wash their hands in between because they were convinced that there was no way that they could be the ones getting their patients sick. And because of their unwillingness to consider inconvenient information that they thought would make them look bad, many, many people died. The decisions that many of us make don't have quite that much at stake, unless you're Felix or Kohar, who are both doctors. <laughs> um, but regardless, I'd say that most of us like to be right. Well, I speak for myself, I like to be right. <laughs> but even more than being right, I like to do right. And so when I'm confronted with a situation or a conversation where I'm forced to consider an opinion that doesn't jive with mine, I have learned to stop myself from getting defensive, from snapping back or popping off, because maybe, just maybe, in spite of how intelligent, wise, and humble I am, maybe there is something in there for me to learn. This isn't about not having my own thoughts or opinions as much as knowing that God is not done with me yet. It's a discipline of practiced humility that says, there is more for me to learn, more ways for me to grow, more possibilities that I have not yet imagined. And even beyond that, it makes me consider other people with greater compassion. They too have a worldview and ideas and a purpose before God that I must consider even if I don't agree. So I check myself before I wreck myself or the people around me to the best of my ability, and I try to cultivate a habit of humility. And cultivating a habit of humility is what our passage is all about today. Over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through First Peter, hearing about what it means to be a church on the edges of empire and how that translates to maybe our edgy little church here in Chicago. And throughout the letter, the author has been giving directions for community members. But here, at the end, the author turns their attention to the leaders. And the number one advice is this. Love your people, take care of them, and be humble. And the funny thing is that it's prefaced in this way. I ask this as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. In other words, I know how hard it is. They will try you, even if they don't mean to. And I should pause here to say that when the author is talking about elders, it's not entirely clear that this means people of an advanced age. Scholars agree that the author is using elder more as a term of distinction for role and responsibility, even though there is this line right after about young people having to obey their or respect their elders in the community. 
This is more about the people who have stepped up to the role of caretaker and shepherd of God's vision for the community. And I highlight this because I think it's easy to assume that when we talk about leaders in the church, it's about other people besides us, right? People who are older, more experienced, or more spiritually elevated. And while all of those things are valuable in their own right, being older, more experienced, and spiritually elevated does not exactly only form the boundaries of leadership. As you all should know by now, we're at the beginning of a transition in our organizational structure as a, as a, as a church. Over the last seven years, Urban Village Church has been around. Um, we've done our problem solving kind of somewhat on the fly, um, as you would in an entrepreneurial space. But as we grow into ourselves and even more importantly, prepare ourselves to live into God's vision for Urban Village Church, we've really needed to take a look at how we can do what we do with greater faithfulness to our values. And so... Under the leadership of folks, uh, several folks across UVC, we have created a much clearer structure um, of how we do what we do. A lot of people come to UVC and want to get involved and often don't quite know how to jump in. Well, this new structure is intended to make that not only more understandable, but more accessible. And you'll kind of see that accessibility um, in, the, in the weeks and months to come. And this is a really, really good and healthy move for us. And here's why. First, it's transparent. It distributes knowledge. Have you ever been part of an organization or an institution where decisions got made and you were not quite sure how it happened or who was consulted in the decision-making conversation? Well, we are trying to prevent that from ever showing up, uh, that question from ever showing up. Secondly, it's equitable. It distributes power. Our commitment to being anti-racist, authentically inclusive community requires us to be much more intentional in terms about, of how we share power at UBC. We don't want to be a pastor-driven church, and we don't want to be an 80-20 church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. We're about creating an ecosystem where as many people as possible are enabled to add their time, talents, and resources as they are able to help us become who we are. Thirdly, it's community-driven. It runs on mutuality. And here is probably the most exciting and challenging aspect of this new structure. It relies on a commitment to mutuality. All along the way, what is built in is a culture and a web of relationships that translate into support systems for one another. And finally, in the spirit of our focus for today, it reflects the third value that we hold at UBC. It is relevant. It matters for the world we live in. The practice of leadership at Urban Village serves as a training ground for bold, inclusive, and faithfully relevant living outside of the church. What we do together spirals out into the world, not only through the ministries itself, like our Ash Wednesday outreach or our podcasts or even the ways that other churches call us up to learn how, about what we're doing and how we're doing it, which is something we get a lot of. In fact, tomorrow we'll be holding a day-long seminar for folks from a church in Detroit who want to come and hear from us and figure out how they can incorporate what we're doing into their ministries. What we're doing in this community spirals out and is deeply relevant, not just because of what happens through our ministries, but also because how it shapes each and every one of our lives and the people that we become as a result. You don't need to be of an advanced age or an expert or spiritually elevated to help us do what we do or be who we are. The church is full of folk who are simply trying to be the best that they can where they are as faithfully as possible. You don't need to be a powerhouse to be part of a ministry, but this leadership will serve as a source of empowerment and a training ground for faith in the life that you live. 
when we practice leadership in a community of shared values and vision, this ripples out, whether we like it or not, into other parts of our lives. It can be incredibly inconvenient, too. There's a direct uh, transference of the ways that we learn and grow as ministry leaders that bleeds out into every aspect of who we are. We get to flex and grow muscles in a space and among a people that are decidedly for God's vision of wholeness of life for all, as messy as we may be in living it out. Because church folk are messy, just like everyone else. We learn how to deal with one another graciously and generously and still hold each other accountable. And why does this matter? Well, because the author, as the author of 1 Peter warns, the devil is prowling about looking for someone to devour. Do you know how good a life that could have been tastes? You created for so much possibility. A conduit of grace and life-giving power. Courage rendered ineffective by fear, by busyness, by pettiness, by cynicism, and a string of excuses that do nothing to build your mind, your courage, or your capacity. Instead, you're left feeling anxious and dissatisfied and insecure and overwhelmed. So in the Christian tradition, uh, it talks about the devil as one who is called, talks about the one who's called um, the devil. And what it's talking about really in the tradition is that it's an entity that the devil as, we just, as, as it's called, is a, a, an entity tasked by God to test our faith. One whose job is to see where our fears and insecurities and anxieties exist and then exploit them to see how, just how disciplined we really are. Leadership and ministry in the church is what builds our discipline and strengthens our capacity to respond from a place of faith-driven humility, compassion, and love. Focus your mind and your heart. Gather them up and train them for the transformational work of the gospel, not just for the sake of this community, but for the sake of the world that we live in. This world needs loving hearts, critical minds, and compassionate spirits. And standing in leadership, or at the very least participating in the upbuilding of a community where those kinds of values are shared, is how you begin to deepen those very traits. As Dayette said, it's not through articles shared on Facebook Right? It's through authentic, loving, compassionate relationships. This world needs more of that. This world needs loving hearts, critical minds, and compassionate spirits. And because when enough people get lazy about their purpose of seeking a wholeness of life for all, that's when spiritual battles emerge. Spiritual warfare is real. And maybe I'm like freaking some people out here, right? But spiritual warfare is real. And it is much more elusive and intelligent than a little red guy with a pointy tail running around. Spiritual, spiritual warfare looks like complex economic systems that build wealth on the lives of the poor and disenfranchised. It looks like a federal law to end the use of private prisons getting reversed and then seeing stocks for private prison companies soaring. It looks like racially restrictive covenants embedded in home loans across generations, agreements that made it illegal to sell your home to a non-white, non-Christian person, agreements that systematically locked people out of neighborhoods and towns no matter how much money they had so as to keep up property value. It looks like free school meals being taken away from children who can't think because their stomachs are twisted up in hunger in the name of educational reform. 
I am grateful for the free meals I received when my mother pushed herself through nursing school while trying to take care of three children on her own. These things, they may not sound like the kind of spiritual warfare you read about in the Left Behind series, but you cannot deny that there is a fundamental spiritual deficiency when it comes to these circumstances. There is something bigger at work, making cowards of potentially courageous people, deadening our consciences for what is happening to those who Jesus preached good news, the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, the oppressed. There is a spirit of death moving hardening our hearts and unleashing an almost breathtaking apathy for those who need to be lifted up and protected. Why shouldn't female and male identifying persons use the bathrooms that are safest for them? If you have read some of the New Testament, you'll hear about things like powers and principalities. And what powers and principalities are at the end of the day are systems and structures made up of the spiritual, intellectual, and physical choices of entire bodies of people bound together. It is the collective movement of lives which create, which create an energy and a spirit that is much bigger than any one person. It almost can sound impossible to undo when you dig into it. Almost. Until we recall our own spiritual legacy represented by this table. This table and everyone who has ever approached it. We step into this legacy every time we come to the table, but we strengthen it and carry it forward when we step up and step out and add our energy to the work of those who came before us. This is how we engage in spiritual warfare. We add the energy and movement of our lives to the spiritual legacy that is consistently moved toward God's vision of reconciliation and wholeness of life for all. Adding to it begins here. Building this community will give you the experience of setting your heart and mind in the same direction as others in a conscious, intentional way. This is your spiritual boot camp. This is where you can be all you can be. This is where you can ask and you can tell. Learning how to love and care for one another, working out personality differences, communication, team building, and culture crafting, walking together humbly as you work together with one another. It might sound totally mundane and unsexy, but this is the training ground for all other areas of your life, believe it or not. It keeps us clear-headed. It keeps us focused on God's broader vision. And this prepares us to courageously and compassionately engage a world that more often than not seems decidedly against, set against that vision. It sounds like a stretch, I know. How can me, serving as a welcome coordinator, have anything to do with anything else? How can singing on the praise team or running our sound or counting the offering make any kind of impact for God's inclusive love in the world? Well, here's the thing. It's not just about you. It's about you and 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 me, all of us, together. It's about our individual lives, collected and bound together by love, joined with the saints who went before us so that we can pave the way for those who will follow after us. It's about a spiritual battle whose forces that would prefer to keep us scattered and separated and ineffective and ill-equipped for the work of wholeness. When we come together, bit 
by bit and move in the same direction, we not only carry forward our spiritual legacy, we also unleash something new in the world through the lives we live outside of this community because of this community. Lives that multiply out a tenacious hope and knows how to persist through suffering and not only snatch a victory from death, but enact an a vision, and a new world order that is fueled by radical hope in action. And for that, I say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you invite us into a spiritual legacy that is far beyond any one of us, but has been the result of faithful individuals bound together, moving forward in the same direction. And so we pray for this community that you would raise up, that you would stir the hearts, that you would poke and prod the spirits of each person who is part of this community in this space, and even not here today, to do the same, to step up, to build this community, this training ground, so that their hearts and their minds and their souls can be strengthened for the work and the transformative power that you want to unleash in this world. Help us to build our courage here so that we can, in turn, encourage those around us who don't know what radical hope looks like. Help us to be agents of your hope, of your love, of your compassion, and most of all, of your work of reconciliation for each person in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>